Hi, this is Tim Miller, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we are back with another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by Tim Miller. Having taught at Berkeley College of Music for over 20 years, Professor Miller is an in-demand instructor here in the guitar department and has authored and co-authored several guitar books with Berkeley Press. He's played with the likes of Terry Lynn Carrington, Paul Motion, Gary Burton, Dennis Chambers and Pliny, and has released several albums as a band leader, most recently Trio Volume 3. As always, a lot of this content will be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Tim Miller. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berklee College of Music, and welcome to a new Coffee Talk and a new season of Coffee Talk. We're joined, as usual, by our assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, I have oolong tea today. I hope that's okay. I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, all. Ian, what are you drinking? Uh, this is from the Nespresso in the, uh, in the office. Nice. Uh, I think it's the Papua New Guinea beans. That's good. You got a good froth there. Yeah. Yeah. And our special guest today is Professor Tim Miller. Hey, Tim. Hey. <laughs> Tim, you've got your Berkeley Guitar Department coffee mug. I do. Um, what's in there? Do you? So, I mean, is there coffee in there today? It's a prop for coffee talk. It's empty. <laughs> Are you a coffee drinker, Tim? I am, but I, it was in this, so I just I thought this looked cooler, so I just thought that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, paper cup, regular cup. Tim, do you? Um, how do you take your coffee? Uh, cream and sugar. Nice. Do you care what kind of coffee? What kind of bean? No, I don't go that deep into it. Just whatever, whatever's there. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And you're at school too. We were back at uh, at the office, and we have. We have our coffee bar set up, faculty coffee bar. Yep, use it every day. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, Tim, a lot of the people who are, listen, um, they're starting Berkeley or they're coming to Berkeley for the first time. And so the one question we ask everybody is, what do you remember about your first days at Berkeley? Does anything stand out for you? Um, well, I didn't go here as a student, but um, as a faculty member, um, the first thing I did was uh, guitar sessions camp. That was like the first thing that I, I like, you know, the first thing I did. And uh, I just remember um, walking in and there was Rick Peckham and Larry Bayonne and they sent me to my, you know, my ensemble room. So my first experience was just like ensembles and getting together with guitar players and working on tunes and I think it was great. Um, and then when I started teaching here, um, uh, the thing that I, I remember kind of clearly about this was having a meeting and then them showing me all the proficiency requirements and, and all the stuff that we had to teach. And that was actually really interesting. I remember going home and like checking out the whole 
curriculum proficiency stuff that Mick Goodrick put together and started going through it and like working on it and everything. So it was great. It's kind of like a refresher course and a bunch of stuff for me. It was, it was awesome. So that's kind of interesting because um, you and I share this, that we were at different schools before coming to Berkeley. And so could you talk a little bit more about that? Like what struck you maybe about being a teacher at Berkeley, whether it was proficiency material, curriculum, just things like that. Like, what do you think um, you ended up doing as a teacher here that maybe is different than what happens in some other types of schools? Well, the biggest the biggest difference that I think that I I found right off the bat was just the 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 uh, variety of styles uh, that are covered here. Where I went to school, um, it was great. It was North Texas, um, and it it was a great school and it had a great experience there. Um, but it, you know, it's just jazz and classical really there. So, um, and. Here, I just felt like it was so much more broad. And so I was getting a lot of students who were interested in all kinds of different things. So that was really different um, um, and really refreshing and, and great about this place. It's one of my favorite aspects of this place, actually. So over the years, do you think, I mean, maybe it'd be hard to answer this question, but do you think that, that kind, this kind of environment had an effect on your playing or the way you think about your own artistic music? Um, I've always been a, a pretty diverse listener, so I don't know. I don't know if this environment. Uh, I'm sure it's affected in all kinds of ways. Um, I've always listened to a lot of different things, though, and appreciated a lot of different types of music. And uh, I grew up just being a fan of music in general, and I never had that thing where I I liked you know this and didn't like that. I was just like one of those lucky kids that didn't didn't have that you know, kind of negative things with certain types of music. I just kind of took it all in. So I've always been kind of that way. Um, but I found it really interesting actually to, 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 to work with students of different styles um, because I, I kind of gravitates towards certain things. And then when someone comes in with something that's really different than what I do, uh, sometimes it's a learning moment for me, <laughs> you know, where I'm, you know, I might not be exposed to a certain artist or a certain recording or a certain sort of like way that something's happening. And then the tables are turned and suddenly I'm the student for a minute and, you know, I'm learning new things. So I, that'd probably be the biggest thing is you, you become the student, you know, right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I think that's really cool too. I, and I think that's right with so many different things going on. Um, and, and I'm wondering like with one more connection to that, a lot of people know you as a teacher, a lot of people know you for different musical projects, um, things you've done with Alan Holdsworth, things you've done with Mick Goodrick. Um, and you also play duos with different faculty members, um, all on our faculty. And I'm wondering like, how do you think about when you play with someone who has a, an equally distinct musical personality as your own, do you feel like each duo or each collaboration ends up being its own separate voice? Do you feel like you kind of bring similar things to each one or what is, what has that been like for you over the years? That's really interesting question. Um, so I try to, I try to go into any musical situation, um, as a, a listener 
first. That's that's something that I've tried to 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 do. And that like if I go into a situation where I'm playing a duet with someone like Make Good Rick or something like that, um, I. I like to sort of like listen to what's going on almost before I play something. Mm. Um, uh, so that uh, the, the, the listener is, is the one that's sort of um, making the decisions. So, so instead of like making a decision before I go in about like what I think it's going to be, I'll, I'll, I try to listen to what the other player or the ensemble or whatever it is has to kind of offer. And then I try to make the best possible music in that situation. So um, I try to not bring too much of an agenda uh, and just try to blend. Um, and so with that in mind, I think that uh, playing with different people who have uh, pretty distinct, you know, very distinct sounds, um, often brings out a little bit different aspect in me, or um, it makes me respond differently to what's going on, you know, as the listener. I just, I think I just respond in a different way. Um, but it'll still sound like me, and it'll still sound like them, but uh, yeah, the listener in me makes the, makes the decisions like so there is this recent time back in March where you played a duo with Julian Lodge. And I'm, I'm remembering this because we were backstage, Cheryl and I were backstage when this happened. And you did that. You, I remember the moment when you came in in that duo and, and everybody just was like, wow. You know, you could have heard a pin drop in the big audience in the performance center, but backstage it was, it was a really beautiful moment. And it seems so comfortable. And so I think one thing when people are listening to this and they're really thinking it through, they're going to think, well, you're, when you're listening about and letting like the listener and you guide what you do, those choices are in front of a lot of people. They're on these big stages and in these moments where you're playing with someone maybe you don't know super well or haven't seen in a long time or someone who's been your teacher or, you know, is your friend. And how do you keep yourself centered and how do you keep yourself centered in the music and calm so that you can be yourself? Well, with someone like Julian, for example, for example, um, uh, and the people that you mentioned, uh, there's a, I have this confidence playing with someone like Julian, because I know when Julian comes in to play, he, he's, he's strong enough on his own to just play by himself. Mm -hmm. you know, he, 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 he starts to play and, and, uh, he, you know, if we're playing duo, there are moments where he doesn't, he doesn't need me really, you know, he can do w what he hears and then I can kind of come in. So there's this, um, playing with someone like that. I just, I just feel confident that we could both be silent or we, could one of us could be playing at, you know, just solo, or we could be playing together mm -hmm. and it's all okay. Right. So maybe when we sit down and um, we're about to play, that silence is nice. I mean, I like the sound of that. So I don't feel compelled to just jump in and play. But if, if he decides to start playing, then I'm going to listen for a moment to see what's happening there and join in 
or we might just kind of like gesture at one another and we start to play together. So I, I think with a musician of that, that level, like Julian, I, I think, I think it can, we can just sit there and do nothing or play together or play, play, play solo in it. And we will listen to each other and respond and, and it, it can feel comfortable. We don't have to even count the tunes off, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, one of our colleagues after that, I don't know if I told you this or if they told you this, but <laughs> they said, um, they said, wow, Tim really knows how to take care of someone and, um, and take care of the music. And I think what you described is so important because I think some of the things that make people nervous um, is that you feel like, well, you have to go and show who you are, right? And, and um, I think what's really nice about the way you describe that is that you're talking about musicians who don't need to prove it. Then they just, you know, you play in the musical moment for whatever that needs. Right. And you don't have to show because you have you have skills for days that you could show us. And the fact that you don't feel compelled to have to do that, I think, is what makes the music that you play really special. Thanks. I mean, yeah, I like what you said. I mean, just take care of one another while you're playing, you know, like because you you want it to be a conversation. You want it to be something um, that's comfortable for for both people or whatever the, the ensemble is, in this case, duo. So you just want to try and play something that's going to make them feel comfortable to sort of like tell their story or sing their song. You know, you, you, you know, it's not really about I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. It's more like, okay, let's, let's have a conversation and let's see where it goes and let's have the confidence that, that uh, uh, we're going to just take, try to take care of each other musically. And then it kind of, it calms down all that stuff actually. <laughs> And then you could just, someone could be very active and the other person can be very, you know, just, uh, just playing very, um, you know, like something could be dense and something could be sparse, you know, it can just all happen. It's all about really listening, I think. Yeah. yeah. So the other player, I love the way you put that. It's great. Cheryl, I know there's a lot of things on your mind, so I'm going to kick this over to you. Well, I mean, I always love that, Tim, I've seen some of your um, lessons online and stuff just about silence and letting silence be is as important or maybe even more important than the music. And be, and also because you can play so dense <laughs> and and, you know, Chick Corea to me was always like that, like that sense of could play with that dense density and intensity, but also it, and I, and also just because it was just so in the pocket and the way you are too, about just where you put everything, you nail it in place. So strongly that all those things, you know, having that, that sense of space, but I love that you talk about that in, in your playing and with your students, they remind me of um, Jim Hall, would say, you know, students would ask him about comping or something. And Jim Hall always had funny ways he would say things. And he would say, don't do something, sit there. You know? So I'm sure you deal with that a lot. You know, students come and they ask about things like comping and, you know, I don't know, just anything you want to share about that and, and developing a really strong sense of time because all of that really hinges on that. You know, the thing with with the space that you mentioned first, um, 
I think the the musicians that I've been drawn to the most uh, have a really intuitive sense of that. I, I you know, the, the players that I've listened to and grow, grown up uh, with and been inspired by and influenced by uh, seem to all have that common thread in their playing to where where like one note is enough or no note is enough, you know. Um, so so the sound between the notes um, uh, is it is a sound actually <laughs> because you can hear the environment that 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 it's that it's in. So if I'm playing with another guitarist and I don't play anything, then you're hearing the other guitarist. Or if we both stop, you're hearing the room or like the decay of the note, if it's a live room, or if you have like reverb on your guitar, you're hearing the de decay of the reverb. So uh, I, I think I'm a little bit sensitive to like what the way the notes sound and actually the end of the note. Like, so when the, the note decays, there's like a quality about that, like how long is the decay or if I cut it off, what happens in the air after the cutoff? So I think that a sense of space can be developed uh, with a, a, a new sort of sensitivity to the um, to what happens at the end, and not just kind of like rushing to the next thing on one's mind, but actually it's back to the listening thing of just like listening to the sound, because I actually love the decay sound as much as the note sound, you know, like the attack sound. So. So I actually feel like um, if if I'm ignoring the decay, I'm ignoring half of the music. So then I would be like stepping on my own playing by playing something <laughs> before it needs to be played. <laughs> so that that's how I think about the space. One of the things I think about with space, and also, um, you know, uh, one of my one of my favorite solos ever was this um uh and i always point to this one it's this this pat metheny solo from uh this older record from the 80s called 8081 and the song is called going ahead um um and he also has a solo on this tune called olay from one of their older things and it's just kind of this perfect lesson in how to like put spaces between your phrases as a guitarist you know and play something and just let it sit and let the room, you know, develop the note. Uh, so I think maybe like early, early experiences with re like really heavy recordings like that kind of maybe think about it for the, you know, as things go on. And you mentioned time. I think it all relates because, um, it's that sensitivity to the spaces between the notes and, the volume of the notes and the decay of the notes, you know, how, how, how loud is it? Uh, how long is the note? Um, uh, what, what did the articulation sound like? Where does it sit in the beat? You know, like, um, these are all things that require like very close listening. I think like you have to just be listening and paying attention and not, not in a technical way, just like in an intuitive way, just really listening to the sound and, and dealing with it in the moment. So I think timing, um, making something feel like it's in the pocket or fit with the particular ensemble 
requires that the focus is is really put on the sound and the, the listening. So it all goes together, I think. Really tightly, I think. You know, you, Tim and Cheryl, you both are are known for having a beautiful velocity in your playing. And it strikes me that one of the important things about that is are two things you just said about the shape of the notes and about your time. Because there's a relationship with with that with the way people hear something as fast. If it's in time and the notes are shaped intentionally, it sounds faster. And if things are a little haphazard in there in terms of your tone production and the shape of your note and your accents and your dynamics, and then you're rushing, it actually sounds slower. And um, I mean, I, I'm a classical musician, so this is like you're talking my language here. And um, we actually did um, we did an experiment one time with live recordings, and and we had clock clock them, you know, the metronome markings, but they're live, so some of them were. And they were like the Bach Chacon, and so it's really fast sections of that piece. And then when you close your eyes and, and you had to guess which one was the fastest without clocking it, everyone picked the slower one that was in time and mm -hmm. like kind of beautifully crafted. You know, um, it didn't sound less spontaneous, but it sounded faster because it, it had like it didn't lose, it didn't like spin out. Um, and I'm wondering, maybe to both of you, maybe Tim first, like, how do you think about speed in your playing? How do you practice for it? And then what are your goals with it when you're, when you're playing? Like, what do you use it for? Uh, I, I would say, uh, well, compositionally, speed would just be, uh, you know, if you're looking for, you know, something, uh, you know, brisk or fast. But in, in, improvisationally, I would say um, that, but... Also, I use speed as kind of like a um, getting somewhere important. You know, in other words, like if I if I have a destination, uh, you know, like a, a note that I want to get to, you know, something fast will get me there. So it's almost like running up to something, you know, important. Um, that that's one way that I use it. It, it always seems like it's helping me get to that next really nice melodic note for, for me, you know, I just want to get to that next place and that next place. And sometimes I want density and sometimes I want like velocity to get, get to get me there. Sometimes I don't, I sometimes just want an interval. Sometimes I want that to get there. Um, so that's how, that's probably how I use it the most, or just, you know, depending on the tempo of the tune, if it's a fast tempo, if I want to generate like energy, you know, and, you know, it's a fast tune, you want to generate energy, you play within the grid of that tune. And that just propels the tune forward because that's what the song needs. So um, those are, those are probably like the two ways. I could probably think of other ways too. Um, I sometimes will use speed as a way to um, uh, like vary the texture, just vary, vary, vary the rhythmic texture. So, you know, sometimes I want a lot of variety with the texture. So I want like slow things and like something that's very fast that goes to something very high and the low and just kind of varying the texture of the improvisation. That'd be another way or reason to use it. Cheryl, what about you? <laughs> well, 
I resist answering that because people are always tell me that I play fast, but I don't think that I can or I've do. I've heard it. I've heard it. So I, I just, <laughs> give it, just don't keep secrets from our friends, Cheryl. Well, <laughs> no, but, 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 you know, well, I mean, speed has to do, to be able to play fast, you need to be very relaxed. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, sometimes people will ask me about picking or these kinds of things. And, it, and in many ways, it doesn't matter what it will. It really doesn't matter what instrument or how you play with finger style or the unifying principle of of speed and just great technique is relaxation. So you never see anyone that can play very fast that is tense. And, you know, so often I say that to students like well you know there's somebody you're watching on youtube which is great resource for this something you've watched many times and you say oh this person plays really fast turn the sound down one time and just watch them how they use their body so i mean i'm a big uh I i'm big into learning how to feel the physical space because that, you know, speed, like, well, kind of what Tim's saying, like velocity to get to a note. It's really, how are you filling this space to that space? So I think about it in terms of a phrase or bigger arcs of time, you know, that you can feel. So you're not, you're feeling the subdivisions. You have to feel those subdivisions in there and you're not counting each one. Like you'll be, you'll fall over, you'll faint, you'll, you know, like you can't breathe and do that. But if you can, take a deep breath and know where you're going to land or like kind of Tim was saying, like you have a note or I might have a, just a place in the beat that I have in mind. Then I'm just, I can breathe into that. And it's, I feel all the little bits of it. I'm not, I'm not thinking about or, or, or counting any of those little subdivisions. It's just, you know, kind of, sometimes I say, it's like if you were going to do a broad jump or something, you think, okay, you're at this point and you want to jump over to there. Think about that moment right before you prime your muscles to make that leap. Because once you're in the air, you're already generated there. You're not thinking about it. So it's that one moment of like, and then you're going to land. So it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, has to do with the physicality with time. So I don't know. That's my two cents. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. The the one thing you added was the the like like the destination could be also a beat that it, and not necessarily a note. That's a really good. That's that's a great distinction. That's that's amazing. I think that gets you to the thing where you go for something, and maybe it's not about the notes. Like you can trust the notes, you know, in some way, or maybe there's a strange note, but no one's. That's not gonna when you when you make that landing. It, it all comes together because it has that forward motion and conviction. So, but I know you, you know, you have so many beautiful um, harmonic ideas that you just have that fluidity with. So right. <laughs> keep working on it. You know, I'm keep, I keep, keep working on stuff, you know, trying to develop vocabulary and new, new ideas, you know, but um, I, I do love that idea. Like sometimes you, sometimes you have that note, that you're going for, but sometimes it's just that, that kind of energy going towards that, that intuitive destination. I mean, it might not even be like you're planning on that beat. It's never like that. Like you said, it's not really thinking. It's just like, you can sort of anticipate where it's going. And then the notes kind of take care of themselves could, because fast playing usually requires some preparation in terms of, you know, movements and things like that. 
So it takes care of itself and then you land. And sometimes it's a little bit of a surprise where you land, you know, it's not always this planned thing. And then, and then where you land is your new starting point for improvisation in some sort of different direction. So yeah, that's nice. I like that a lot too. Um, I used to roommate with a, in grad school with a cellist and that's how they would, she said, that's how they think of it. Cause they're on a bow. So they think the first note of the gesture and the last note of the gesture. And that's all they see. They visualize it and the direction mm-hmm. of the line. And that was it. And that that's something that's helped me um, later when I when I started to improvise as well as interpreting things. And I but I love that idea that you don't necessarily know where you'll end up, but you know you know you're going somewhere. You know that this is a gesture that's going there, and then you're going to land, and then you'll build forward. I like that. Yeah, and the word gestures is perfect for this because it's it's like a it's like a like more of a broad thing, you know, this idea of speed sometimes, you know, it's where it's where it, it's it's a bunch of stuff going somewhere. Um, and you know, I there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, but in order to practice that, that you know, so I, I think sometimes we have to develop little small bits of vocabulary that are that are fast, you know, that are quick, you know. Um, at least I do. I have to have you could call them cells or, um, you know, little short lines or, you know, you could, you know, you could have a bunch of names for them. Um, but a lot of times like the, a longer fast thing is, is like combinations of cells and in short, you know, things that are kind of worked on before, I think, I mean, I, maybe some players are different than, than me, but, a lot of times if I'm playing fast, it's some sort of combination of language that like, if I analyze it, like if I slow it down, I'm like, okay, I see, I kind of know all the things that, that I played, you know what I mean? But maybe I put them together in a slightly different way in that moment. But um, sometimes there's this myth that it's just all completely improvised or something like that, which it, which it is on some level, but I think the parts are, are, you usually kind of get that stuff together, the parts, you know. Right, because on some level you have to have put the information in there for it to come out, right? So it's something you have to put into yourself from practicing so you can kind of see maybe what your hands have practiced. If you always are leading with your index finger or if you're ever reaching backwards or if you're leaping strings, right? Those are things you would have worked out earlier even if later in the idea they come out in an improvised way. Yeah, yeah. It's like language, really, I think. Really closely related to that. Tim, what are the things about your playing that that you're really curious about now? Like, what are the things about your own playing that you work on and love to work on? Whether it's like the harmonic vocabulary or the technical things or just... Like, what are some of the things that you, you like about your playing? Um... I think, uh, and and you know this because I spoke to you about the other the other day we were having a session. Uh, Kim and I were together talking about technique um, recently, and um, uh, one of the big things that I'm I'm working on is just is is trying to get m- more relaxed when I play. You know, uh, you know, and you were mentioning that as well, Cheryl. It's like, you know, how far can we take that idea? It's like, you know, how relaxed can we get? How, how, how much sort of control of, of that whole situation can we get? Because 
because th- that to me is the the door that opens up to all of this other stuff. Um, so if I, I so so for me, a little bit of is like technique, you know, getting my technique more relaxed, trying to get my technique um, more fluid, um, being able to breathe better when I, when I'm playing, like we did, we were talking about. Um, because it feels like once that's there and sort of the mental game is there and that relaxed sort of physical thing is there, then all the other stuff really, really opens up a lot more. So if I'm at home working on chords or voicings or something like that, none of that really happens unless the technique is like allowing it to happen. So um, I feel like that's going to be the big journey. And I mean, I feel like I'm already kind of there on some levels, you know, because, you know, um, yeah, I'm already there on some levels. But there's always that like wanting to improve on, you know, like how far can I take this, you know? <laughs> Um, can I get kind of dorky about something like nerdy about something I don't know how to do? I want you to talk about a little bit of, about your hybrid picking because maybe like a year ago, Cheryl and I came and heard you. Yeah. And and so, okay, so here's the thing, because I play with my thumb and I know some people play with the pick straight up, right? But you have a combination of things that you do. And what I really found interesting was if I closed my eyes your tone sounded so balanced and the pick sometimes when I hear hybrid pickers, I feel like the pick feels really heavy. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me that it's such a combination of listening and feeling the strings that you must have to get that continuity of sound. And I'm wondering how you work on that and how you think about it, how you listen to yourself when you play. Yeah. Um, Thanks for noticing that, actually. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I, I kept looking. I was like, no, he has a pick. He has a pick, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. nice to talk to guitar players because we, we all notice this kind of stuff. Um, and Because I'm, because uh, this is stuff I work on, you know, uh, I guess, I guess like you just said, uh, um, I'm sensitive to small changes in, in sound. Uh, so um, that means that, when I choose a pick or choose to pick in a certain way or, uh, you know, hit the string with, you know, the, 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 the finger that's creating the hybrid. I, I think I'm, I'm thinking about tone and articulation pretty much all the time. Uh, it's kind of like a big deal for me. Like the tone and the timing are always like the big thing. So, so I guess with that kind of, uh, way of thinking, I think if you're always thinking about articulation and always thinking about tone, I think your hands tend to follow what you want to hear, you know? So I think I've learned to play that way just because I, I sort of, uh, my ear will say, no, that's not it. Or yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? I'm always making these little evaluations. I think the hand follows the evaluations, you know? That makes sense. So the other thing that I loved about it was it facilitates this thing I love on the guitar called, like I call it harp scales, mm-hmm. where where you fret notes of consecutive notes of the scale on different strings because you you can almost start you're like arpeggiating. Yeah. Like you don't have to just play a descending line just on the same string. So how does the left hand and the and if it's open strings or cross strung things how does that factor into what you're talking about for you factors in a lot because um so i've what i've done over the years is i've uh, 
thinking sort of guitaristically and musically, but, but thinking guitaristically, I've I've mapped out some uh, kind of like intervallic and arpeggio uh, uh, concepts that involve different numbers of notes per string in combination. So I might have like arpeggios that are four note arpeggios that that have two notes on a string and then one and one. So two, one, one, two, one, one, two, one, one across the fretboard. And so what I found was certain, certain combinations have certain sounds. So, so let's say that the two, one, one, I like the, I like that, like four note sort of thing. Um, uh, and and that thing came from listening to Michael Brecker a lot because he would go, you know. And so I go, oh, I wonder how to get that sound on guitar. Okay, well, doing two and one and one across three strings uh, gets that sound. And so what I would do is I found a little hybrid way to do that, to make that work, that move. And then I apply different notes that I want to hear to that that move so you might have dugga 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 like that okay four groups of four i map them out on a certain set of strings which would be two one one which is three strings and then i put notes into that and i can get these cascading kind of arpeggios that but but you map them out you know what i mean they're mapped out because in order for them to sound like i want them to sound articulation wise they have to follow they have to follow the map that I worked out or they won't have the right articulation. So, and I've done that with that. I've done that with this system. I wrote a whole book about it, about this two, one, two arpeggios, this whole thing of like mixing up, mixing up numbers of notes per string. And then there's kind of like a hybrid way of doing that particular intervallic move. And if you, if you explore it enough with different note combinations and you, you really get in there by ear and make decisions about what you want to hear and it matches with a certain kind of technique, then it, it can kind of lead to a whole vocabulary of note combinations that you can kind of mix together along with all of the other textures that you might know as an improviser, you know, uh, but it can be like one part of that entire voice. So a theme that I'm hearing that I think is really good for for especially the guitar players who are our students to think about is when you came to Berkeley, you weren't familiar with the proficiency. So you took them home and you learned them yeah. and you really mapped them out like you didn't just look them over and then said, OK, I do some of this and I do some of my own thing. You you map them out all over your fretboard. And then, you know, when you're thinking like, OK, I have all this vocabulary that I've learned from records or people I love and and the standard thing that I learned from my teachers. Now I want to add my own vocabulary because I have this hybrid picking technique I think is great. And then you mapped it all out and you wrote your own book about it and internalized it. And that's why when you play and you sit down and people say, oh, wow, Tim Miller, you sound so free and relaxed and organic. It's because what's behind that is a foundation of thousands of hours of mapping yeah. things out and listening and making the technique relegate to what you really need to hear to get the result that you want. And I, I think that it's not 
too fine a point to put on it to to make this point because i think when people hear something that sounds so i keep using the word organic but that's what i mean like gestural and free and organic they they really think oh it just comes through you and it and it does but it comes through you also through all of this very concentrated intentional time right it's like it's like a um it's like you said it's a free spirit combined with hours and years of like working really hard at like specific things in it in in a technical and musical way so i i don't really have the ability to separate technical and musical um and that's one of the things i try to to say to my my students it's like i it, if I play something that, that maybe I came up with, it's kind of a technical thing. It's really hard for me to, to play it in that way. Like I like to, I like to play it like I mean it with that kind of, that kind of spirit, because that's the way all my heroes play. They'll play a pattern and the pattern sounds great because it's dynamic and it's soulful and it's, you know, um, or one of these two, one, one things or two, one, two things, whatever, whatever it is I'm working on. I have so, so many textures I like to work on, but like, you know, if you have that free spirit along with all the backlog of stuff that you've worked on, that's what sort of leads to it sounding free. And, you know, I think most improv most improvisers would probably say that there's a lot of study, but in the end, you got to just relax and let it all flow out. And so it's that combination of things. Um, and it, there's a there's a balance there, I think. Um. Ian, you usually ask a great question. I'm wondering if uh, if you would mind jumping in. Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually just wanted to mention one thing about that, um, your process getting from what you wanted to the 212 or 211 that I think is really, really fascinating and applicable to a lot of other styles of music. It's like you noticed... Like, like a, a common thing with guitar players is we really like the playing of someone who might not be a guitar player. And there's some kind of set of limitations or something or like some other way of playing around this person's musicality that is like sort of what they do articulation wise is maybe particular to their instrument. And what you were talking about was finding a way not only to mimic it on the guitar, but actually use what is specific to the guitar to your benefit to actually get the sound that you're looking for. And I think that that's a really fascinating sort of way of thinking about it, as opposed to like, you know, guitar has certain challenges that other instruments don't have. And instead of, you know, like seeing that necessarily as, um, you know, a hurdle, but also to like use what yeah has to offer yeah it's like you take the strengths of the guitar and you make approximations in a, in a way to get it to sound like perhaps uh something maybe that a saxophonist played or a vocalist sang or a piano player or whatever did and you take you know the set of limitations that that the guitar has but you you think about what are the strengths of the actual instrument like what can what does it do what you know it doesn't do what the piano does you know it doesn't do that so if you try and exactly mimic it sometimes it it can be awkward fingerings and things that don't work so 
instead of saying, ah, you know, just forget it, I, I thought, well, what's the gesture sound like? Does it sound like or does it sound like, you know, or does it sound like, you know, what does it sound like? What, what is do? And then look at the guitar and go like, how would you do that on the guitar? Like it, it's not the same, but is there a way that the guitar, the way it works, that could go somewhere in the vicinity of that? So, so it's like you're not. It's like I'm not getting exact replicas of those things that I was inspired by, but I'm getting these kind of like, well, guitar does this, and if I use its strengths, I get this, and then maybe it actually ends up sounding a little bit unique for the guitar, you know. But it, it's it's a really fun way of looking at it, and uh, for me, instead of just saying, "Ah, oh, guitar can't do it like that, and this can't work," and it was like, "But what can it do?" You know, right? It's a you know, yeah. And there's a there's a great guitar player I like, uh, Norman Blake, who is very different from anybody else who plays like stylistically in this podcast. But there's something about his playing. Uh, it's a little primitive, like in the way that he plays the acoustic guitar, but like there's something about his playing that encapsulates the articulation, like the spirit in the articulation that you would hear in a fiddle player. Mm. And even though it's not exactly like a fiddle player, the articulation doesn't sound exactly like the way a fiddle player would do it, but something about his playing encapsulates the spirit of, of like the way a fiddle player would play. Right. And I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. And it turns out Norman Blake actually isn't famous for it, but he's a fiddle player. And so what is it about like the guitar that you can play these things and have the same spirit in it and play it in a way that it's like, if you heard that for the first time, you'd think you can only do that on the guitar. And that, like, if you were playing another instrument, you'd be like, oh, well, the articulation is such that it's specific to the guitar. Yeah. But in fact, it's like, you know, using the advantages. Um, anyway. Yeah, you just, I think you just have to be, you have to listen. You know, you have to have that creative spirit. You know, you have to listen and be creative. You know what I mean? And I think listening and being creative and putting those things together lead to, like, questions and then if you answer the questions with a really good answer in your head, you'll get these nice musical results and answers, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, speaking of questions, here's <laughs> what uh, Kim wanted me to ask. Or was, this is the question that we ask everybody on this podcast, which is, what's a thing that students ought to be thinking about or asking that they might not think to, like a question that they should be bringing forward that they might not think to ask. Let's see. Um, uh, there's probably a lot of those, you know, like <laughs> how could I play with a with better timing? Um, how could I improve my articulation? How could I improve my dynamics? How could I link my ear to my guitar better? How could I improve with chord knowledge and chord voicings? How can I improve my technique? There's a list. How can I improve my ears? <laughs> There's a lot. 
I'm just thinking of the questions I would ask if I were studying with somebody. You know, one I want to throw in there um, that I was thinking about as you were talking, Tim, is a lot of the people you mentioned um, that you listened to and learned from their playing over the years are people you know, or people maybe you didn't know when you were young, but now you know them because of who you are and what you've done in your career. And when you were young, you were listening to them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of students forget to listen to their teachers. Mm. You know, like they may know who you are because of some reason, like they saw a video that you did, or maybe they do know some of your recordings. But I always wonder when students come in to ask questions, you know, have you sat down and spent at least an hour listening to everything you can find from everyone you're studying with? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Because you're tracing your own lineage that way, really, you know, because the lineage of your teacher really is yours, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you kind of start to find out who you are. And I think we have a great curriculum at Berkeley in the sense that you can study with different people. Yeah. But I think what it obscures is that sometimes, like people feel like, oh, well, I'm just doing this for this semester. Like they don't have to commit kind of because they can choose. Yeah. And I think that it might be hard as a young person to choose and choose to commit. Like when you go to conservatory or when you go to a jazz music school that's traditional, the choice is made for you. Like someone decides that they've accepted you into their studio and you pick them just because you audition. And then you're stuck with them, so you're committed. So it's easier because they're making you. So you may as well learn everything you can about where you have to be. But sometimes I think choice obscures lineage and and they could maybe benefit from just sitting and saying like okay i'm going to listen to my teacher and then i'm going to listen to everyone my teacher was influenced by and then get a sense of how that informs what they're learning yeah because the that listening will lead to questions you know uh, i mean just those sessions of listening will lead to oh what about this? What about this? So I have a question about this. And then questions are always a great thing for a student to have. You know what I mean? Because they usually, well, can potentially and hopefully lead to good answers <laughs> given by the, the teacher. So I just think that that sets up a whole series of questions that can get answered and, and provide like a like, like it, it, it turns into a better relationship, I think, between the student and, and the, and the the, the, the teacher because then you have this interest and then this wanting to show you know and it, you know it, it's a great exchange you know that makes me reminds me of and I have a question for you on that on this I remember one of my first gigs that I had an important gig was was with this tenor player Gary Thomas who's incredibly modern player dense player and and has his own voice and one time when we were backstage, he did a Dexter Gordon imitation. Like, I mean, so much so that you felt it was Dexter. And and then, you know, he told me about this when he was a kid, his teacher made him go see Dexter Gordon and they were kids and they're like, we don't want to go see Dexter. But, you know, that changed his life. And he imitated Dexter when he started playing. And but and then I then hearing him, I was like, oh, yeah, I hear Dexter in there, but he doesn't sound anything like Dexter. Sort of the way Bill Frizzell always talks about how he worshipped Jim Hall and transcribed his stuff and played the guitar. And Bill Frizzell sounds nothing like Jim Hall, but you hear Jim Hall there. 
and so there's that process where I think that's important because it teaches you to play your instrument in a way and it makes you passionate about learning a lot of things. So and when I think about your playing, so to bring it to you, I, I mean, I hear your voice so strongly and I'm curious who were the people that you went through phases of admiring and imitating like that? Oh, a lot, you know, I mean, a lot, um, because th that thing that you're, you're talking about, I can probably do that with certain, you know, certain players, you know, like just kind of try and sound a little bit like so-and-so, but I would say, um, uh, wow, it's such a huge list, but I, I will say that, you know, starting out in the eighties as a young, young guitarist, you know, it was like Van Halen and, you know, Eric Johnson and, and, and so all those greats. Um, but then I, I, um, uh, I, I went through a whole phase of listening to get, getting more into jazz oriented players. Like, uh, you know, Pat Metheny was a very, very big influence on me. Pat Metheny, Scott Henderson, uh, Mick Goodrick, Frank Combali, Alan Holdsworth, John Schofield, uh, Bill Frizzell, Ralph Towner, you know, they, the list goes on and on. John, John Abercrombie, who I used to take lessons with. Um, uh, so I mean, I could almost name every probably major figure in, in guitar and they might be an influence for me. <laughs> you know, I've checked them kind of all out. You know. <laughs> Lots. But so it, it, I mean, speaking of someone like Holdsworth who loved Coltrane, mm. and, but Coltrane also loved Lester Young. Like somehow there's always a line. If you pull on some, you get back to Lester Young. Okay, so going back further, though, um, for me, I've transcribed Charlie Christian solos. Um, I went through a big West Montgomery phase. I love, love West Montgomery, um, like in a really big way. Uh, uh, um, Joe Pass. I would say the majority of my practicing at home, what you would hear is me with a metronome playing over blues, trying to sound like Joe Pass. Like to this day, like that's what you'll normally hear me doing at my house is trying to play bebop clearly with voice leading on a, at a medium tempo on standards that's and and i used to copy joe pass's lines and yeah really really try to get that beautiful voice leading through the and to this day i'm still trying to to chase after that you know it's uh, so yeah and jim hall too i used to uh, uh, learn to several of his solos um and that and that coltrane i got really into to coltrane for a while miles davis um lenny tristano um and gary thomas too i used to play with gary with uh terry lynn carrington's band so <laughs> he was one of them too yeah. yeah lots of them i could just name so many people see i think these things are important because i think it's you know, when you're young, you don't realize how much study and how much like study turns into relationships and those turn into musical projects and then they turn into your own voice. And I think it's good to hear how much of that goes into someone's playing. Yeah. I mean, it's just so, so much variety. And so there's, and I love going way back, you know, to things that are way past my generation and, and really, in some ways I like doing that more. Mm. going way back and listening to things from you know at this point kind of a long time ago and really like like listening to the really modern players at the time like at the time 
they were they were the modern players and like what what were they doing you know at that time that was like you know groundbreaking and you know so it's really fun to go back and like just like check that out from that perspective you know what i mean like uh i love the charlie christian thing because it's uh I mean, talk about incredibly modern at the time and different than everybody. And then I remember trying to learn the Rose Room solo and just struggling so much with with technical things in that solo and just thinking, wow, okay, this is really hard to play. You know, I had to work really hard to, to get that solo down. Like that took a long time, you know, and just thinking, wow, okay, you know, there's a lot to look at here. There's a lot to look at here. But I love that. Thanks, Cheryl. That's that's a cool that's a that's a cool thing to think about. Taking it way back. Probably my favorite thing to do. I love that. That's great. Cheryl, what's on your mind as we come kind of close to the end of our hour? Well, Tim, thanks for joining us and you shared so much really deep stuff about listening, how important just listening as you play. I mean, listening to music and listening, and also that where you're talking about trying to get to that place of ultra relaxation in terms of a place to play and perform from, I think it's, that's really golden information really. So thanks for sharing that. And also just this last little bit, just talking about, you know, seeing the threads, following the threads back, you know, you tug on them a little bit and you find yourself right here in the present, not that far away in, in some ways, you know, so thanks for sharing all that. I think it's great for our students and, and our listeners to really keep that in mind, going back to fundamentals, as Kim always says. Yeah. <laughs> always that, right? It's always that. <laughs> yeah. Ian, I love the points that you made about listening outside your style and outside your instrument and bringing that into your technique. And um, I'm wondering if you have some more thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that's that was pretty much it. I mean, like, that's something that I was trying to do in such a different style and totally different physical technique on the guitar, but to like hear somebody like of your level tim talk about doing that in a different way is like it's i don't know it just really struck home so yeah well thank you ian and thank you cheryl and um tim thank you so much for hanging out with us having thank some coffee you. with us that was really fun thank you I really <laughs> it. Loved it. that's great do you have any final thoughts oh how about advice? Advice for, uh, for I mean, a lot of the students have just come back, right, and done one month, and are settling in, trying to settle in. What, what do you, what do you have to say to them? Do you think? Ask yourself good questions. Good questions lead to good answers. Ooh, all right. I like that. I like that. That'll be our final thought. Um, so thank you, Tim Miller, and. Um, We'll be with all of the rest of you on the next Coffee Talk.